So um, I am indeed a forensic psychiatrist. So I trained I trained in medicine and then in psychiatry, um, and then I trained as a psychotherapist. And that, for those of you who don't who don't know, is I mean a psychotherapist is someone who is is paid to spend time listening to people and trying to make a psychological sense, trying to listen to the meaning of what people say. Um, and that really would be a topic of it uh, in its own right. But what I want to talk about today, um, and this has came out of a, a, a brief conversation that Julian and I had in, in, in January when we were both at a, con uh, at a uh, conference on evil, you know, like you are. Um, you know, um, a whole lot of people all together in a room talking about evil. Um, and we were talking, we, we, we were chatting just about the whole issue of, of, of something about children and about genes. And um, I rather rashly said that I had some thoughts about this that I wanted to get off my chest. And so Julia very kindly invited me to come and share them with you. Bluebird House is a, is a secure adolescent unit um, in the New Forest. Um, and, um, and I work there once a week, mainly with the staff. And it's based on, partly on that experience. And I want really to, to, to raise a question, some questions with you um, about about what it is that, uh, about what we're worried about in relation to children who are antisocial and what that might mean. You're very welcome to have these slides um, uh, somewhere, somewhere in Julia's email, I expect there's, <laughs> there's one, an attachment with all you these attachments. Yeah, so, um, is it okay to put it up? Yeah, yeah, abso absolutely. So let's, let, I mean, really this talk starts with uh, 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 the question about what's the best way to reduce violence in a society. Here we are, we're a, you know, um, you know, a large bomb falls on Westminster, we're the new government. What are we going to do in terms of reducing violence? What's the best way to start? Um, and of course one of the things you would want to do is to look at what the risk factors are for, for violence. Um, and antisocial personality disorder, just for the moment, just take it from me that that is a, a, an established risk factor for violence. Um, and I'll come and explain a bit more what I mean by that. Um, and so the prevention of antisocial personality disorder, ASPD, would seem to be sensible. This is how the reasoning goes. So there's been an expansion of research into early identification of antisocial behaviour in children. So that's, that's where the, a lot of the interest has started. I guess in the last 10 or 20 years, particularly the last 10 years, I suppose, there's been an interest in the prevention of antisocial behaviour. Um, and looking, therefore, at antisocial behaviour in, ch in children. Now, so I'm, in, I'm just, throughout the presentation, I'm going to share with you a, a true story. Um, not all the details, the details, some of the details have been changed to protect the guilty and innocent alike. But this, imagine a boy called Jim, the oldest child of his parents' union. They divorced shortly after his sister was born. His stepfather was violent to him and his sister and his mother. And he killed his stepfather um, when he was 17 um, and then was sent to a, a prison um, and became very disturbed in, in a young offender's prison and was sent to a psychiatric unit, secure psychiatric unit. And there he became even more disturbed and was sent to a high secure hospital, which is where I first met him. So here's a little bit of data. Um, I'm afraid you can't see that very well. Up at the top, the top line, um, the, the, the legend is early onset persistent. So that top line is about the degree of high risk of, 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 of the, about high risk behaviour. There, there are different trajectories of antisocial behaviour in boys. We're just going to stay with boys for the time being. Antisocial <coughs> girls are a whole well, in fact, they're not a whole different ballgame. They're the same ballgame, but much smaller numbers. But 
The same principle, the top line is a group of high-risk boys with early-onset aggressive behaviour, high-risk behaviours, and it's persistent. And you'll see that that's only 9.2% that's of, of a sample. And then the next group down is, is a group where the antisocial behaviour is limited just to childhood. And you'll see that's 14.7% of the sample. I think... Um, and then you've got another group, adolescent onset. And these are, quite an, these are an interesting group, uh, because these are people who, who don't start offending until, until they're teens. Um, and you'll see straight away that there's an interesting, or you should notice straight away, there's an interesting challenge to the stereotype, really, which is about teenage boys, which is that the vast majority of them are not getting into trouble necessarily, or not persistent trouble. Um, but there are a few that do start in the teenage years, which as well gives bulk to the stereotype. But actually there's a significant number who actually are troubled in the early years but drop down in their teenage years. And it's only this small group at the top who have early onset antisocial behaviour, a minority, about 10%, um, who show the antisocial behaviour, which seems to persist uh, across time. So, but you see also that it starts very early, as early as, as four um, now, you will be asking yourselves, uh, or wanting to ask me especially, well, what do you mean by antisocial behaviour? And I'm going to come back to say a bit more about that later on, so hold that thought. But it is, of course, the crucial uh, question, um, I think, is what do we mean by antisocial behaviour? But this, this, is a sort of, this is pretty much where we've been in terms of the empirical, uh, empirical knowledge base about, miscon about um, misconduct and, and rule-breaking behaviour in, in, in boys. Because, of course, within antisocial behaviour is a minority of children who might be described as violent. And one of the big problems we have in this area is conceptual slippage from rule-breaking to antisocial behaviour to violence. And these things are not synonymous. It's not even clear, of course, that, this, that aggression um, um, has, has anything to do uh, with violence. So most children don't offend. But a lot do. About 75% of 18-year-olds um, have at least a caution for some sort of rule-breaking behaviour, which is phenomenal, uh, really, it seems to me. Um, but, um, but I think a lot of, the, I mean, a lot of that sort of is, is literally sort of larking about type of caution for, uh, for rule-breaking behaviour, very, very minor rule-breaking behaviour. And it does raise a question about whether there's an important stage in one's life about, about testing out of rules. And the, com the commonest is criminal damage and minor theft. But there is this subgroup of children who seem to start early with, with, in terms of being antisocial, and they graduate from property offences to being physically harmful. So again, just to recap, we've got these two main trajectories. We've got those who start early, uh, under 13 or even really under 10, and they graduate from physical violence at school or at home. So they're mainly getting into trouble for being physically aggressive to sibs and to parents and to, 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 peers, at, to peers at school. And that persists, that, that physical aggression um, persists into early adulthood. And, and, and this group tend to account for about 70% of the violence that's perpetrated by teenagers. So you take a group of, take 100 teenagers who've been convicted of, of a violent offence, say at 17, most of those most of those will have been um, identified as being physically violent um, really very early in, in childhood. And then there's this later group who start, much, who start later, and they tend to stop. 
But notice that I've used the word violence very specifically, and by violence I'm thinking about a type of harm that breaches physical body boundaries. So some sort of physical, physical harm. I'm not including threats, um, although not to say for a moment that threats aren't very unpleasant, but I think that there is a difference um, between people who are persistently criminal and those who are actively violent. And certainly when we're taking a history in the hospital, what we, what we do is to look very carefully at the, at the sort of patterns of, of, of behaviour. Um, and it's very interesting uh, how often, those in, in, in our hospital at any rate, at Broadmoor, we have a small, only a very small group of people who come with brand new acts of violence, having never been violent before. Most of our guys have been violent in the past. So this is really, this, this um, comes from, uh, I can't remember, I think this is work at the Institute of Psychiatry, which is really comparing um, aggression and delinquency, but also looking at, um, but also looking at uh, genetic vulnerabilities. And I think the uh, genetically vulnerable group, uh, the E group, um, no, I think they're the pink group, sorry, they're the, they're the C group, they're the genetically vulnerable group. Um, and they're rather different from this other group of people. Again, you, you see this rise in delinquency in the teenagers dropping away again. But then there's the genetically vulnerable group who seem to be delinquent in their early years at 10, 11, and then it drops, it drops away again. The point about the slide, the sorry, again, it's a cut off at the top. The legend at the top is aggression. And really what, what, the, what the authors of this study are making the point that aggression and delinquency are not the same and that uh, being aggressive is not the same as being delinquent. By delinquent, they mean, uh, they mean uh, breaking, breaking the rules in, so, in some way. And that is interesting, I think, because um, I think we might, we might want to consider what it means to break the rules, that, that, that those decisions to break the rules are interesting decisions. And if they are, even if there is, as it were, an absence of decision-making capacity, a type of impulsivity, even that's quite interesting in its own right, because what, you know, what we find is that people can be impulsive on a number of different variables, but they're not impulsive everywhere. So it's, it's, it's not as if there, people, there are people uh, who have brain damage from them who are globally impulsive, but most people um, that we see who are a bit impulsive in terms of rule, criminal rule-breaking, again, tend to be rather specific in the areas of, of rule-breaking. So just to reinforce this point, because it, it absolutely bedevils the literature. So if, you, if you're interested in this topic, if you start to look at the childhood origins of violence or the childhood origins of antisocial behaviour, what you find is that the research involves all sorts of rather interesting populations who are often, we might wonder how antisocial they are, for example. They're school-aged children, for example. Um, and which are not many criminals uh, there, not many people with, with, with histories of, of violence. So you're going to be, you, one of the things you have to do is why, what are we generating here? What are we looking for here? What is it that we're worried about? We can see that there's a group of, there's a group of children who seem to be breaking the rules, who seem to be socially at odds with others, even to the point of physical damage quite early on. Um, but you know, who are they and, and what are they? Um, and again, just really just to make the point that a lot of the studies, it seems to me, conflate um, aggression and delinquency and violence. Um, and, and these things, it seems to me, maybe on a continuum, but they're not, they're not the same. When it comes to risk factors for violence, the ones at the bottom, these are what we, this is epidemiological studies of violence. If you follow up a group of people over time, 
and look at who's going to be violent. These are the main factors that increase your risk of being violent. Um, being young and being male. Everybody in this room? Um, being young and being male. Being antisocial. And because, of course, not every young male is violent. So, you, so we think, it might, one of the ways that I think about it is, is, is if you like, uh, in terms of a bicycle lock, uh, where you need four, uh, appropriate locks, perhaps you need four numbers to open your bicycle lock. And the first number is a, but it, the first number is a commonplace number, which is about being young and being male. But a second layer of risk, factor, risk is being antisocial. Having a type of stance where you are against the rules. And that presupposes, of course, that you know what the rules are and that you engage with the rules. It's an interesting number. So we might say more about that towards the end. I'm hoping we might discuss that. Um, because this is, that, I think, is where the philosophy comes in, and the moral philosophy, which is what do we mean by an antisocial state of mind. Social isolation turns out to be a risk factor for violence, um, but social isolation is a risk factor for a lot of social ills, um, mo mo increased morbidity, increased mortality. Being socially isolated is not good for you. Um, and you won't be surprised to find substance misuse is a risk factor for violent crime. And that's almost certainly because substance misuse, well, two things. One is substance misuse provides you for a motive uh, for some types of theft. But the other thing is that substance misuse, is sub or most of the substance, disinhibits you. So your choice-making capacity goes out the window. I mean, any barriers to deciding not to break the rules are less likely after you've got something on board, um, mostly alcohol. Alcohol is implicated in something like 80%, 80% of violent crime. So, um, and that's an interesting, and that itself is an interesting phenomenon because you might think, coming back to our first question, okay, we want to prevent violence. Here we are, we're the government, we want to prevent violence. What shall we do? Well, do we you know what about, you know, what about banning alcohol um, or greatly inflating its price, etc., etc.? And that's a whole new ballgame. So, who are these? Uh, who are these young people? Uh, children, so young people services, child and adolescent psychiatry always call these uh, children young people. So I'm going to do the same. But it does seem absolutely very strange to call an eight-year-old a young person. Um, but there are um, where we need to. This is this is the this is the phrase that people use in the services. But we, if you take a, a group of teenagers who, are, who, are, who have been violent and we meet them in Grubo, they usually include the small subgroup who are antisocial well before the age of 10. The boys often have a history of conduct disorder and adult uh, and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Again, which is really whatever, and that again is a topic for another day, but that in itself raises a whole question about impulsivity. Again, to what ADHD is a risk factor in these boys, probably because it goes to the issue of impulsivity um, and, rule, and rule breaking. There's a very interesting and, and important problem about substance misuse um, because the brain is still in active development in the second decade. So that any substances you take um, have a significant impact on the wiring of your brain. Um, which is why some of you may know that there was a, a recent study, the Terry Moffat's longitudinal follow-up study in Dunedin, which shows very nicely that, that those, those young people who, who smoke cannabis before the age of 17 are at greatly increased risk of developing psychosis um, la later, whereas if you wait 
until after 17 or after 21, uh, your risk of developing psychosis is greatly reduced. So the message is, don't smoke pot until you're after age 21. So there you go. You heard it from me first. So, um, smoke as much as you want after that, but, not, but, but only if it's a really good party in the music. So, um, so one of the other things that, uh, in terms of the study of violent young people, remembering that the, the end game is to try and reduce the amount of violence in society is to look at psychopathy. Now, psychopathy is a very particular construct. It, 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 is a, it was a construct uh, developed in the... Well, it's been around for a long time, um, but it, it was a, it's been a, a construct that was particularly developed in the 1940s and 50s to describe a group of people who were, who were indeed antisocial, who couldn't keep the rules, and who didn't seem to learn from anything, from any such type of punishment, but most of all didn't learn from any type of social condemnation and didn't seem concerned by other people's distress. So this was the original formulation of a psychopath. Someone who really didn't seem affected by other people's distress. And someone who broke the rules in a rather mindless sort of type of way without any concern about the consequences. Now, that formulation of a psychopath was taken up by a man called Robert Hare and applied to criminal populations. And in the, criminal po in the criminal populations he studied, he found a small subgroup, so that is a minority of criminals, who seemed to have this lack of emotional interest <coughs> in the distress of others. Um, and this, it's really, um, this, it's this conceptualization that psych of psychopathy that has grown exponentially over the last uh, 40 years. And we now, as you there's a, know, that psychopathy in psychological terms really consists of two principal uh, aspects. One is a readiness to break the rules, so, and a flagrant disregard, really, for rules. But also uh, a willingness to con and deceive others, and a type of contempt for other people's distress, which is very interesting and unusual. Um, in, in human beings, most uh, most people are not do not experience contempt um, and uh, and um, for ambivalent for other people's distress, but these guys do, and that's the classic description of, of, of psychopathy. One feature of psychopathy, is, which has been greatly studied, is this question of a lack of fear or anxiety about distress or consequences. So these people we call psychopaths are sometimes described as lacking any sort of emotion, lacking any sort of emotional reactions, but particularly lacking fear or distress. And this lack of fear, um, lack of concern about the others' distress, have been called callous and unemotional personality traits. And so just remember that phrase because it's callous and unemotional personality traits that have been looked for now and studied in young people and children. Remembering though that this comes from work with people who've already been established as callous and unemotional. So the research on psychopathy is all on people who've committed acts of serious violence. That in a sense they've established their callous and unemotional credentials uh, beforehand. And what is interesting about the psychopathy research is that not everybody in a prison 
will actually score highly for psychopathy. You can make you can measure psychopathy in a sort of rough and ready way um, using a, a type of questionnaire and interview. Um, and what is very striking is that not everybody who commits <coughs> acts of violence um, is a psychopath. Um, and equally, probably not all psychopaths commit acts of violence. Um, but then the psychopaths who don't commit acts of violence, who are they and do we really need to be worried about them at all? So, just to push on with this a little more, what is a train? Because, again, some, you could be forgiven for thinking sometimes when you hear psychologists talking that a tray is somehow a sort of, uh, has, is a sort of phenomenon that has a sort of real physical existence. And a tray is, a, is really a description of a tendency to behave in a certain way, a bundle of beliefs and values and, and, and attitudes. That's what a tray is. So when psychologists talk about personality traits, they're talking about a, dis a description of, of behaviours, but also, not just behaviours, but also values and attitudes. And, 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 and you may well, immediately, those of you who are interested in the philosophy of action, may want to question whether which comes first. What does it mean to measure behaviours in the absence of values and attitudes? To what extent do people have behaviours without values and attitudes and beliefs are a sort of an identificatory stance? Uh, we might think here of Galen Strawson and uh, of Strawson and, and re participant reactive attitudes. What, what are we talking about here in terms of behaviours? Can a tray really be a behaviour? Are we not just counting behaviours? So, complicated area: the study of personality traits. Um, and there, I mean, and I should say, it's not. It's an interesting area of research because there is evidence that personality traits, a disposition, a tendency to behave in a sort of way, does does tend to persist over time and it's true that many of our personality traits do appear to em emerge in childhood and persist into adulthood and some seem highly heritable the, gen the, the G is for genetics um, the, some personality traits seem highly herit heritable although they tend not to be the ones for any type of complex behaviours they tend to be more for the tendency to get excited or the tendency uh, to get um, agitated or aroused um, which arguably is probably not so much psychological as biological. But we also know that the expression of a personality trait is greatly influenced by the environment in which you're raised. There's absolutely no question about that. That the expression that how genes work, because we know a gene is just is a protein. You know, pro genes aren't anything more very important, but they are they are they are proteins affecting the regulation of uh, of chemical activities and their actions are, are affected by environmental factors. So you have a genetic vulnerability, you get put in a certain environment, and that greatly enhances the chance of you developing whatever, whether it's an illness or, um, or in this case, um, behaviour. So let's look at callous and unemotional traits in children. And this, uh, these are the, this is the measure of callous and unemotional traits in children, that of a big study um, that's been ongoing in um, in England over the last five years, um, perhaps a bit longer than that, maybe ten years now. So this is a study. This is actually a study of twins, um, looking at, at looking at twins, and, um, and these are twins who, when they were rated at this point, they were seven or eight years old, and ratings were taken from their parents, but also from their teachers, and their teachers were asked to rate them on these criteria. 
So a failure to feel bad or guilty, <clears throat> unconcerned about the feelings of others, does not show emotions, is not concerned with homework, does not keep promises, does not keep the same friends. So I think that's an interesting, that is the definition of being used in this particular study of what it is to be callous and unemotional. And in this study, um, again, about 9% of the, of, the, of, the, of the children were identified. Um, uh, no, possibly slightly less than that, I think. 9% um, of, of the twin pairs and, about, and only about 4% of the study overall. So very small number of children. Very small number of children scored highly for these sort of traits. And we can come back and talk about this later, um, if, you, if you like. Because one of the things that it seems to me is interesting about this is, I, you know, is this a good definition of what callous and unemotional might mean? And what does it mean if your teacher thinks that you're not concerned with your homework, um, for example? What does it mean if you don't keep promises at school? What does it mean if you don't keep the same friends at school? What do we know about the normal range for seven-year-olds in terms of showing emotions at school? Uh, what do we, how do you rate unconcerned about the feelings of others? Um, and then failure to feel bad or guilty is an interesting one. It's, um, so I, I'm not suggesting for a moment that these aren't an attempt to measure something. They're rating something, but I'm not quite sure what they're rating. Um, uh, they're, certain, they're certainly telling us something about what teachers think is evidence of callous and unemotional states of mind in seven or eight-year-olds. So there's a question, though, too. The difficulty about this is that in the studies that uh, are available now, there is a slight sense that the callous and unemotional traits, once you've found them, that they're there permanently. See, so like the genetic, like genetic vulnerabilities for for hips, like genetic vulnerability for developing diabetes, like genetic, there are, like that somehow this genetic that this genetic vulnerability is there permanently, and that's going to have a permanent effect on who you are. The difficulty about that in relation to children is that children's brains are still developing. Children's brains are well into the, sec well into the second decade, um, well into the end of the second decade, in fact. There is still a great deal of myelination and synaptic connection forming, go go formation going on. It's also not clear what norms are being used, as, 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 as I mentioned. What are the norms for emotional expression in, in seven-year-olds? And what about a range of norms? For example, there isn't any... We might want to raise issue questions about cultural norms, for example, in relation to the expression of emotion, and indeed norms around gender role. Seven or eight is an interesting time in a child's life because that's the first... One of, the, one of the early stages of gender identity formation is around seven or eight, where you realise the impact of belonging to a gendered world. Um, any of you who've got seven or eight-year-olds or got, uh, have anything to do with seven or eight-year-olds will know that they, are very, they become very conscious of gender identity in, in a way that perhaps they're much less so when they're three or four. So the other thing that's perhaps not terribly present in the, in the studies of callous and unemotional traits is um, parallel, putting it in context of parallel studies about the development of moral reasoning and moral identity in, in children, which is itself a whole cognitive capacity 
which is growing alongside all the other cognitive capacities. So, um, so for example, what we don't know here is anything about how these children might approach a problem in promise-keeping. If you ask them, if you talk to them about promise-keeping, there would probably be quite a range in what they might say. Because, again, the development of moral discourse in children is in itself a whole, a whole area um, of a significant development. Uh, children are not the same. They range um, in terms of, their, of what they say. And, of course, that, that development continues, particularly in the teenage years. The point being that if you've rated a child as callous and emotional at seven or eight, it's a bit hard to know what that means in terms of what he or she, mainly he, will later think when he's 15. And that is just, for those of you who like pictures, this is diffusion tensor imaging. And diffusion tensor imaging um, is, uh, is particularly interesting because it offers a way of looking at white matter and white matter connections in the brain. Um, and the point about diffusion tensor imaging, this is, as you can see, is fully fixed, but if you imagine this was moving, I mean, that is what your brain is like. Your brain is in constant movement. It's not fixed. Um, and the wiring and firing that's happening all the time, as you're sitting here now, um, is, is just that. It's a constantly, it's a dynamic process. So the idea that trays for callous and unemotional uh, behavior would affect your brain and it would stay affected um, is not terribly plausible based on what, what we know about how brains develop. So here is Jim again. Jim comes into, the thera into a therapy group. This is actually a therapy group that I'm one of the therapy groups that I run. And he alternates between being very contemptuous of the whole therapy process, what a load of shit this is, and highly engaged, in which he contributes, he really thinks, he's articulate, thoughtful. He's an articulate and thoughtful person. And he gives a graphic account of, of how he stabbed his stepfather, which leaves the therapist feeling a bit sick. And that doesn't happen very often in the hospital. Um, most of our people do not... Um, spend a lot of time talking in great graphic detail about their offences, even in therapy groups when they're you know, it's at least partly on the on the menu. Um, and it's not often um, we did wonder how much this was being done for effect. Is the, is the point I'm making. And one day he came to the group and described how he'd looked himself in the mirror and said aloud, "Who the fuck are you looking at?" And I and the reason that I remember this in particular is it makes who on earth is he talking to? If you're looking in the mirror and you say aggressively to the, your image, who the fuck are you looking at, it does rather suggest a certain degree of at least confusion or at least a question about, about who, is, who is speaking and who is looking, who is the agent here. So just to recap again about, about genes, because, this, because the story that's being built up is that antisocial children have genes for callous and emotional behaviour that might predict their antisocial behaviour. So, one of the things about no, the thing is about genes is that um, we know that they regulate arousal and mood regulation in particular. So, a genetically vulnerable child might well manage negative feelings less well, and when he's distressed, he may um, he may also be subject to abuse or neglect. He may. It's a risk. Um, it's a risk for children that they will be exposed to abuse and neglect. And the key, key about 
abuse and neglect is that you are, when you are abused or neglected, you tend to be, you experience high levels of fear. Um, and then you may be at high risk of uncontrollable physical behaviours under the age of 10, but such a child is likely to be highly unpopular with other children and likely to be expelled. So again, one of the interesting things about the, the, the genetic study was, uh, was, the, um, was the fact that these are children still in school, and of course some children who are very antisocial may well have been expelled before they get into the research studies. So, just to recap, that you know, brains are like plants, and some are genetically stronger or, or weaker, um, and their growth and development depends a little bit on, a great deal, in fact, on the soil in which they're raised and on the weather they experience. Um, and the weather that they experience includes not only their physical environments, but in fact the emotional states of the people around them. Uh, Stanley Spencer, for those of you who like to know um, where these pictures come from, a uh, beautiful picture of the garden. Um, how long have I got, Julian? Um. We, we've extended the room, so you've got a full hour and a half that we'd like to have some questions. Yes, no, no, that's, I was assuming. So, I've got to... so you've only been going for half an hour. Yeah, okay. So, Because uh, I just wanted to talk a little bit about attachment theory, um, because, which is a theory, uh, it's, it's a theory of, of, uh, of how children learn to manage stress and fear in the early years. Um, and the reason that I'm, I've, I've introduced it here is that it's a psychological theory of development and not only self-development also brain development which A has a lot of empirical research to back it up um, but B I think is particularly relevant in this context of children who are said to be callous and unemotional because um, children who are with callous and unemotional uh, on this analysis will have less will have less fear and less stress um, and attachment theory includes an account of how we, all of us, particularly children, use early caring relationships with others to manage, uh, to learn how to manage fear. Um, and so we talk about secure and insecure states of mind and uh, that whole notion of a security blanket and that sort of secure attachment, insecure, comes from the work of John Bowlby and attachment theory. Again, a body of work that really starts um, just after the war um, but in, in the study really of disrupted it, of the sort of social their relationships. So attachment systems include um, the idea of reciprocal care listing and caregiving, reciprocal care listing, caregiving, mental representation. So the theory goes that you experience caregiving and care listing as you're growing up, and that gets represented in your mind cognitively as, an, as a, what's, what was called an internal working model. So a, a set of cognitions or um, beliefs with emo and emotions which you activate when you are exposed to threat. Um, and these attachment systems, uh, I say, are activated at any time you feel distress um, or threatened, and it's linked with, with, clearly linked with memory. So you can be, they can be, they're activated at least in part because of, of, of memories. Um, and are also linked with the limbic system um, and the generation of emotional uh, responses. But what we know is that insecure children tend to become insecure adolescents, and insecure adolescents tend to become insecure adults, and insecure adults tend to have insecure children. 
um, and so around and around uh, we go. Um, this is not true for everybody um, because there are there is some fluidity in the system, and it's possible for insecure children to become secure, though it's not all that common. And it is possible for secure children to become insecure, but it tends to run true. There's a certain there's, well. I think the evidence is pretty clear. Uh, not everybody, I think, agrees. But I, I think the evidence from a couple of long-term studies is very clear that generally security or insecure states of mind tend to persist across time. Um, and some types of insecurity are particularly associated with dissociative states, so cutting off awareness, self-harming behaviours, which are quite interesting um, in the context of what we're talking about, um, and other features of dysfunctional personality. Now, the reason I'm, again, I'm emphasising this because if we're hypothesising that there are a group of children who are callous and unemotional, one wonders what reactions they're eliciting in other people um, how, and how they themselves are responding to other people's reactions to them. So one wonders about what's happening to care eliciting and caregiving systems. Um, in a family where you've got a child with callous and unemotional behaviours. Because attachment, your attachment relationships are the environment in the gene-environment interaction. It's how you, it's your relationships with particularly your parents, it doesn't have to be your parents, it could be any caregiver, persistent caregiver, but it's got to be an enduring attachment. And it's that attachment relationship that's the environment in which your genes are going to manifest. So, you ha let's say you have a genetic vulnerability to be callous and unemotional. Let's say that that's, we know that that's possible for a moment. And you are raised then in an environment where you don't have your needs met, where you are treated with hostility, where you are encouraged to feel fear or distress. What we don't know is how that genetic vulnerability and that adverse environment uh, work together. It would seem intuitive, wouldn't it, that hostile and angry parenting um, might, but might greatly increase the chances of, uh, of becoming delinquent or violent acting out. So because we know, if you, look at if you look at delinquency in children, one of the things that you find <coughs> is that their children are much more likely to have hostile and angry parents. Um, and one of the questions, uh, one of the theses is that if the hostile and angry parenting tends to be associated with increased delinquency in children and that's because of the effects of child maltreatment. That a hostile and angry parent is a parent who is also more likely to use physical abuse within the home, is also more likely to use emotional abuse within the home. So the effect, for example, of being regularly sworn at is really not good for the developing, for the developing brain. Uh, there's some interesting studies about the effect on frontal lobe development, uh, chronic verbal abuse. So here is Jim. Jim made progress and went back to his medium secure unit and he seemed to make a good therapeutic relationship with a the male therapist but when that therapist left, uh, Jim began to start to break the rules in the unit. Um, his behaviour began to deteriorate and he was physically violent towards the nursing staff and eventually the police were called and as the police took him away Jim was heard to shout you can't do this to me I'm not a patient and and I bring this to because it raises a very interesting question it seems to me about 
who is a patient and what is patient-like about being callous and antisocial? What happens if you don't perceive yourself as having a problem? Your only problem is that you act in ways that make other people don't like you. And for very good reasons. I mean, the people you're, you're dislikable for good reasons. What do you call that? Do you, and what, what does, does it matter what Jim makes of it? I think is one of the questions that we ask ourselves in the hospital a great deal. Does it matter what Jim thinks about it? Or is it enough just to say to Jim, you are, you are behaving in profoundly antisocial ways. Everything about what you say and do suggests that you have very antisocial attitudes towards all the rest of us. Um, and you must change, essentially, we might say. Does it matter what Jim thinks about it? What if Jim says, I'm not antisocial, you're just all stupid? What does that, and what, what should we make of that? And it's because of those sort of questions that that's why I became a psychotherapist, to try and think about what we should make, make think about that. Um, just to remind ourselves, for those of you for whom this is unfamiliar, <coughs> The, uh, the bit of the brain in orange, pretty orange, this is the limbic system, um, which is the part of the brain that regulates um, emotion, but especially negative emotion, um, and fear and anger in particular. And you'll see that it has close connections, um, it, that it's linked to the olfactory bulb, um, which is just why smell has, uh, has particularly emotional uh, associations that the other senses don't necessarily have to quite the same degree. The hippocampus is where most of the work is done in memory. Um, and the prefrontal cortex is where most of our experience of being ourselves takes place. But I cannot emphasize too strongly that this is, it is not a, uh, it is, this is a model, if you like, there aren't, it isn't, a spa, it isn't a question of a spatial area, that this is where we do memory and this is where we do the frontal, the, the sense of the executive and agency. There are complex networks. The bulk of where, the bulk of the neural substrate for decision making is in the prefrontal cortex. Um, but, it's, but it's linked by an extensive network to the hippocampus and the limbic system. And really what we're talking about when we're talking about brain functions, we're talking about networks constantly firing constant activity of networks and, 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 and electrical uh, activity um, going on rather than the idea of you know, messages, information going from there to there to there to there. It's not like that. It's not a modular system. We have, there are now a couple of uh, studies which have uh, looked at genetically vulnerable children, children who are thought to be genetically vulnerable for uh, a number of, of different behaviors, particularly antisocial behaviors. This is Kim Cohen in the States, and again, I've mentioned Terry Moffat's study in Dunedin. And the advantage of these studies, these are longitudinal studies following up children from about 18 months. Um, and uh, longitudinal studies, as you can imagine, are very expensive to do, which is why there aren't all that many of them at any one time. Um, but the Moffitt study has been going on, I think, for now 20 years or so. And the great advantage of the Moffitt study is it's very large. It's, the pop you know, it's most of the population of the South Island of New Zealand, um, which is a reasonably stable population. Um, and Kim Cohen, I think, is in, um, I think is in Rochester in uh, northeast um, America. So, but what they've both shown is that genetically vulnerable children who are exposed to, to maltreatment, to abuse, are at increased risk of antisocial behaviour and conduct disorder. 
so that doesn't sound very sounds perfectly plausible. The genetic vulnerability being very sort of strange genetic variations on neurochemicals that we think are related to mood in particular and and how people get aroused. And then there's a man called Alan Shaw, who's a neuroscientist and also a psychotherapist in California, who's done a big review of all the research um, on how, um, how early childhood adversity might affect the development of your brain. Um, and he, in his review, he's quite clear that early childhood adversity affects the development of neuronal connections between the limbic system and the, and the right orbit of frontal cortex, which I, I we talked about before, um, and affects it adversely. <laughs> that is to say, so that the neuronal connections between the, in these parts of the brain don't develop so well. And we know that physical abuse and neglect in childhood predicts your arrest for delinquency and violence in later life. You're much more likely to be arrested for delinquency and violence if you've experienced physical <coughs> abuse and neglect. Some studies include sexual abuse, but, mo but sexual abuse doesn't usually increase your risk of being convicted of a criminal offence, except for crimes to do with prostitution. Not perhaps very surprisingly. So what we're interested in in child maltreatment is the effect of chronic fear on the developing brain. So what happens when your caregivers are either hostile or helpless or both? And what, what happens if your caregivers are hostile or helpless or both, then they will behave in ways that are abusive and, fright and frightening, and that is likely to have a bad effect on your developing brain. So these abusive parents often have histories of maltreatment themselves, though not all of them, so one of the questions might be, do parents who abuse their children have callous and unemotional traits? So what sort of care would an adult who had those callous and unemotional traits we were talking about earlier, what sort of care might they give to a distressed child? They've got callous and unemotional traits, they have a child who's in distress, what sort of response <coughs> might they give? And in fact, if a child has callous and unemotional traits, where did they get them from? It's... Um, and that's one of the interesting things about the twin studies, um, um, Essie Vine's twin studies, is that she doesn't do a screen for callous and unemotional traits in the parents. Because presumably, um, those children with CU traits um, got them from somewhere. Um, and they must raise a slight question about, about, about parents um, who have callous and unemotional traits. So it seems to me that Coming back to the question of if we wanted to reduce violence in society, um, why are we interested in the children? Well, we weren't interested in children because we think that a small proportion of people who are violent are, are, violent, are antisocial as children. But that seems, that seems you know, that there is some evidence to support that. There's no question about that, I think, in fact. <coughs> that some people who are violent seem to have been violent really from as early as 8, 9, 10 perhaps not violence in the sense of adult violence, but certainly physically aggressive, cruel, callous, unemotional, certainly. Um, so what is the proper, what, is, what should we do about them? And one of the things that I wanted to put out as for discussion today was whether it is easier to think about changing the children than it is to think about changing parenting that a significant proportion, if not most of these children with callous and unemotional traits, 
will not be at risk at all if they get really good parenting. They might need to get even better enriched parenting than, than other children. They might need to get very special, intensive parenting um, that develops and, and focuses on warmth and empathy and compassion. And I think it's interesting to consider the, the social narratives that there are about people who are bad from birth, about children who are bad from birth, the notion of the bad seed, the notion of the, the demon child, um, the children who are impossible from birth. Um, and some of you will have uh, read We Need to Talk About Kevin um, or seen the wonderful film version of the book. And it rests on a premise that there is such a thing as a child who is horrible, really, from the moment they arrive, very antisocial, really very sort of hateful uh, from the moment they arrive. But there are not far fewer narratives about parents who are hostile and helpless from birth, parents, adult men and women, who don't really like being parents and who don't warm to having children and who find children's distress contemptible who don't want to be close to distressed children. People who perhaps should, you know, perhaps might have been well advised not to become parents <coughs> because it's not, actually, they're not people who like, who, who have indeed callous and has unemotional attitudes towards, towards uh, distress. And there are even fewer narratives that suggest that parenting is something that you, is a skill that you have to learn to acquire and that everybody can get better at it, get it better at it, and perhaps not everyone can do it well that it requires a capacity to be able to tolerate distress, um, which may be a problem if you have callous and unemotional traits. And I just want to end, really, by raising questions that we can use as a basis for our discussion, which is, let's say, um, and I'd be very interested to hear what Julian has to say about this, let's say we can identify children, we can, and we can, reliably, we can reliably convince ourselves that these are children who really do have callous and unemotional traits, um, they're seven or eight-year-old boys and girls, say much fewer girls than boys, but a few girls. Um, what should we do with them? How will we respond to them? What sort of parenting or care should we give them? What sort of intervention should we place on them, if any? Um, will they change over time? Well, the evidence suggests that, that, that their parenting, the parenting and rearing they experience might have an important impact on the outcomes. So we might need to think we might need to think about what about the plasticity in the system. If you just say these children have callous and emotional attitudes and treat them as that's that's how they are and that's how they'll always be, will require you to ignore the fact. Um, that there is an enormous amount of plasticity in the, in the system. The other thing is that where does moral reasoning fit into this? How do children learn uh, that whole range of moral of responses that we call moral? And one of the reasons that I got interested in this work because I was interested in moral reasoning and people who demonstrated spectacular failures of moral reasoning. So I assumed that anybody who had sort of killed three people in Swindon for example, not just in Swindon, but in fact in anywhere, um, <laughs> was someone who had a sort of catastrophic lapse of moral reasoning. And so what I did with Jonathan Glover, as, John, uh, um, as Julian was alluding to, was to look at moral reasoning in people who showed egregious 
failures, apparently. And, and what we found is that actually a lot of people who've done terrible things seem to have actually not bad levels of moral reasoning. According, and of course, it's a whole question about how you measure that. But, but, but actually, their moral reasoning was, you know, not completely was not zero, <laughs> perhaps, which perhaps the most important thing was not completely absent. And in fact, they did consider themselves to be moral agents, um, and wanted to be considered as such. Um, so there's a question about with these we identify these children with callous and emotional traits. What will we do about their moral thinking skills? And I think that there may what we may be exposing here is a type of intellectual tension between a, a mechanistic model of mind and a social model of mind. Um, and so, you know, at present. We do provide some psychologically secure care to disturbed children. So in the secure unit I work in, we provide care that's physical, that's certainly physically secure, but we try and provide some psychological interventions as well. But we currently don't provide any psychological care for disturbed parents at all. If you are a disturbed parent who's hostile and helpless towards your children, uh, there is uh, very, very little help, almost no help that you can get from very little little bit in Oxford, you'll be glad to hear, but not, otherwise that's about it. And there are about 50,000 children in care at the moment, most of them um, on the grounds of physical abuse and neglect. And so all of those children are in theory at risk of offending in later life. Um, and we have some questions, I think. If coming back to our original mission, we want to reduce <coughs> violence in our society is identifying, the is identifying disturbed children really the best way to go? Or might we want to pursue other routes? Um, it might be that, these, that these, the real problem comes that children with CU trays grow up to be adults who don't respond well to vulnerability, and it might be more fruitful to study parents with callous and unemotional trays if we really want to prevent future damage. And I'm going to stop there so that we can have a bit of time for discussion. Uh, thanks, that was really fascinating. Um, but I always wind up when, I, when I'm talking to people who are uh, involved in uh, psychiatry or psychotherapy, uh, people with, with antisocial traits. Um, I always find myself wondering, the kind of layperson's question here yeah. is, is you know, who's to blame then for for these uh, sorts of antisocial acts or, or crimes? You know, if not the children, if not the parents, mm -hmm. uh, it, it, the narrative that seems to come out of people who are involved in uh, secure facilities is that in fact nobody's to blame, right? Which I can accept as being a kind of a, a possibility. I was just curious if I could first of all get you to kind of describe how you react when you hear people, um, you know, do you have a moral response? Do you think that there is a, do you think that your emotional sort of moral uh, responses are inappropriate or appropriate? Uh, and, you know, do, and, and, and if, if not, then how should we, how should we change uh, the sort of structures of blame? I mean, I suppose a lot of our uh, social institutions and uh, penal system and 
uh, the way that we kind of construct social responsibility uh, has to do with the kind of concept of blame and blameworthiness. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It doesn't seem like we can just throw that out the window. No, no, no. No, uh, uh, yeah. no. Well, I mean, I, I mean, I'd, I'd want to start by saying that I'm. I'm, re I'm, I'm really not wanting to change anything about social processes of blame. I have no doubt in my mind that, that we need social processes to blame people and express a social condemnation. If somebody has done and has, has harmed one of the citizenry, I think that's a harm to all. And I, and I don't have any doubts that we should express some condemnation and some sort of blame. Um, I work in a bit of the system which decides that after the blame there can be there might be a range of disposals so we don't we don't we don't say no blame what we say is well that there might be different different types of response to the blameworthiness uh, we might still blame them but we might say perhaps we want to try and help rather than simply deprive people of liberty um, and that's a whole new problem but nothing, nothing of what i've said should be taken as wanting to reduce blame. But what I think your question raises is a fascinating question about, and this must come up a great deal, I think, in neuroethics just generally, which is the whole idea that if you've established some sort of cause, then that is a total explanation and it removes blame in some way. And I don't really understand this argument at all. Um, a, I'm not sure I accept an argument from cause anyway. Um, but even if you could show that something was caused, I'm not sure that that necessarily takes away blame. Um, what my my interest is 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 more in what you do afterwards. Um, okay, let's say so they're you know, so they're to blame. Actually, this is interesting. I, I run a uh, I one of the groups I run is um, a group I referred to is, is a group of people who killed somebody close to them, which is wittily entitled the homicide group. Um, and um, and if you think that that's uh, not terribly amusing, you can think, well, what better name would you give to a group of people who killed um, people they're close to? So, but one of the things we were discussing in the homicide group yesterday was this very interesting question of the distinction between murder and manslaughter, because we've got two of our guys have been convicted of murder, and about three of them or four of them have been convicted of manslaughter and got diminished responsibility, which is the standard route into secure psychiatric settings. If you killed somebody. Um, if you well, just a little bit of general information, if you're going to kill somebody, um, um, if you kill somebody, you and you um, you will be charged with murder, and if you're convicted of murder, you'll get a mandatory life sentence. Yeah, that's standard law. If, however, you want to argue that at the time of the offence you were mentally abnormal, you can try and run that defence, um, and you argue that your responsibility was diminished because of your mental abnormality, and because of that, your blame is somewhat reduced, and so there's a range of options after that. You might still get a life sentence. You might very rarely get a suspended sentence, but there's a range of options for the sentencing judge. So in, in mental illness settings, what, well, in secure forensic psychiatric settings, what happens is that um, people usually get manslaughter on grounds of diminished responsibility. But we do quite often still get people being convicted of murder um, and then get transferred from prison to the hospital because of concerns about their mental health. Um, so, uh, so I think that one of the things is about uh, well, they were having a discussion in the group yesterday about what's the distinction, and it's all about and it's all about blame. But of course, the people who've actually killed someone, they still feel blameworthy, even if they get diminished. You know, it's not they don't. Uh, I think Pat was next, and then Nigel. Did you, is your point on this one, Nigel? Oh, no. Well, thanks for your presentation. Uh, you seem to suggest we should shift to the CU traits of parents 
and your conclusion. But then in the earlier slide, you mentioned the problem might actually be about the kind of relation, parenting relations that the parents and children have. Yeah. Uh, so the question is, it seems to suggest two types of ethics. One that focuses on individuals, mm. Mm. on the traits, and the other mm. focus on care relations with yeah. seems to be more akin to like, care ethics. Yeah. And I just wonder how far, how close the two traditions yes. in one presentation fits together. Yeah, <laughs> a very good question. <laughs> and, and, and actually, that would, I think that that would be a, a very interesting presentation to do in its own right, to see, and I, I wasn't intending to do that. Um, uh, I'm, not sure my, I'm not sure my skills are up to it, but I think it's a very interesting thing to say, because I think that so much of traditional bioethics is focused very much around an individual vision of relating, and particularly in, a, in, in, in healthcare ethics, it's about you know, the individual healthcare professional and the individual patient and the primacy of that single rela and that, that relationship, that that's, that's what drives the analysis. But it seems to me that when you, when you come to talk about children, anything to do with children, then you're talking about an identity which is A, growing, and B, nested. Um, and I, I was very influenced by the work of George Agage um, and the notion of the, of, the, of the nested relational autonomy, and that's partic particularly so for children. And I think that's a very powerful challenge, tradi traditional accounts of bioethics. Um, you're, you're, you breathed. No, 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 I was just... Uh, you? I was, you're out. <laughs> no, 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 I was getting ready to sort of introduce Nigel, but I wasn't sure whether you were... I have finished. We've been, but I, I, for, there's lots more to say, but I, I, it's the subject of another seminar, really. No, I just wondered if um, having callous and unemotional traits precludes moral behaviour, because mm. obviously on the Kantian model, it's, a, it's almost a precondition of knowing that you could be moral, that you are callous and unemotional. Mm. And he, um, so it could mm. be that there's a large class of people who are capable of highly um, sophisticated Kantian behaviour who fall into the category of callous and unemotional. <laughs> yes, you, you, I'm laughing because I'm just, I, I was looking at a paper published a couple of years ago which showed that um, psychopaths turn out to be very good. When, when, if you give psychopaths, proper criminal psychopaths, a moral reasoning test, they tend to be very good consequentialists. They're excellent consequentialist reasoners, um, but not very good at... Uh, uh, well, that's about Swedish, though, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, well it's, it's, it's about, I think, well, is it about squeamishness or is it about... Um, other people, uh, principles just not being very real. What's the point of the principle when it's at home, I think? I, w well, I wonder, I wonder, I that's mean, what I don't know. But for Kant, there's this whole mm. idea that if you feel compassion, that's a mm. class your ability to tell whether you're genuinely acting morally because mm. you're, you're actually from irrational sources. Yes. Yeah. So the assumption seems to be that to be a moral agent, mm. functioning in society, you're not that kind of person, you're, you're somebody who feels compassion. Mm. Relates to other people with yes. emotions. Well, it's a, it's a. So is it a reputation of Kant? Yeah. I don't know. I don't. I don't. I don't know. But it's and it is interesting that because I think we have and I think those those definition of the CU trades you see were quite interesting in terms of suggesting that we have an expectation, for example, of people keeping their promises, having feelings, doing their homework. I'm fascinated that doing your homework could end up 
on a list of criteria for callous and animal on What's emotional states of mind. I mean, callous yes. is a very weighted term. To a use very weighted, a very weighted, a very weighted word. Um, but, but just to clarify my understanding on Nigel's question, mm -hmm. is it the case that psychopaths can be? My understanding was that they can understand what the rules require. Yeah. They just don't care about doing. Mm. So they know what they can in the canteens is they know what society is required. Mm. They just have no inclination to do it. Mm. Which shows that you know it's the sort of whole Kantian model is completely psychologically flawed because you can operate as a perfect Kantian agent, mm. you know what's required, but just have no motivation to do it. Well and yeah, well I mean I must say that's what I mean that's what I struggle with a, a little bit. I mean I I, you know, uh, the the idea of a sort of principles and, and, and that sort of uh, those sort of ultimate duty approach, and of course the not treating treating people merely as a means, of course, is something that you see all the time in psychopaths. Mm. You know, where, and it is the, you know, it is the violation of a Kantian you know, uh, principle in that sense. But I, I agree with you. I think I mean, I'm inclined to agree with you, Julian, that I think that there's a problem about how do we think about moral identity, about how we think about the idea of the sort of person I want to be. And I don't think that psychopaths, you know, really good, no, no, weapons-grade psychopaths, I think they don't care about being a sort of person. There isn't a sort of person I want to be. The notion of being anything else than what I am right now, why would I want to be anything different? So I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit more, a couple of minutes, about what you found doing all these interviews. Isn't oh, right. It's an incredible sort of uh, experience right. that no one else has had. Well, um... Well, and, and Jonathan has a lot more to, to say about about this from a philosophical point of view. But I mean, but my experience, um, we we use we we use two types of interviews. We used a, um, a, a type of interview which was just about sort of asking sort of general moral sort of questions, get into the general moral argument really about why is it wrong to do things, um, and that. Um, and then the other type of discussion that we we used something called the ethic of care interview, which was very much around um, as by, by uh, developed by the woman Ava Sko in Norway, but very much drawing on on Carol Gilligan's ideas about an ethic of care, um, and the idea of a sort of situated reasoning in terms of uh, situated in the relationships, um, and. What was very interesting is that our, our, no, our guys didn't score very highly on a test of moral reasoning. Um, but I thought the interesting thing was interesting was that they said they weren't, they, they weren't, there was an absence of moral reasoning. There was nobody who wanted to, as it were, absent themselves on the moral arena, say, I'm not having anything to do, this is a load of nonsense. I mean, there's a problem about research, of course, because it may be that the most antisocial people of all just don't engage, engage in research. And I think, you see, even to be involved in research is to be somewhat pro-social, it seems to me. Um, so I think you're, you know, you're struggling a little bit at first base. But the other thing I should say is that in, in Broadmoor, um, our guys are not, as, are not that psychopathic necessarily. That to school, I mean, because, again, anybody who's very psychopathic probably won't come to the hospital because they won't see themselves as needing help um, and they wouldn't demean themselves to come to the hospital. So we tend to get people who are, are much more emotionally dysregulated. Um, Is it voluntary? No, it isn't. You can be detained there, but, but we tend not to detain people who are absolutely antipathetic to the whole exercise. I mean, people who... I mean, we've... So, so where would that, that would go back to prison? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. They are. So, and we, so the most psychologically ill people are in the prisons? <laughs> the most psychopathic people. The most psychopathic people are in the prisons. Um, people who score really highly on Hare's measure of psychopathy will be in prison. But we do occasionally admit, we've admitted a couple of guys who are high-grade psychopaths, um, but we've admitted them because they're self-harming and suicidal as well. You see, this is the other problem, is that they're not... Most of the people you see who commit really violent offences have a whole range of psychopathology. They're not just... Psycho, they're not just psychopaths. And there's a real problem about the research in psychopaths is where is the best place to find these people? And then you begin to wonder whether you're actually starting with a vision of what you're looking for first and looking for people to fit. And I think it's very important in our society to have a vision of a big bad man who knows exactly what he's doing, who's fiendishly clever, doesn't have any feelings. You know, that this... That this, this, this story is, very, is a very important narrative in some way. I'm not saying that, doesn't, that such a person doesn't exist, but I think I'm not sure that, you know, that Bob Hare's psychopaths are all, uh, are, are all like that. Um, yeah. Um, I'm sorry about this department. I'm part of the social policy intervention. You were in the right place. You didn't come from... Studying um, social traits and early childhood and parenting. Oh, so I'm very interested in your, what you were just saying there about... Um, about the hair definition of psychopathy, mm. and um, to me, it's quite problematic that that our child measures of CU traits or psychopathy were derived from adult samples. And I wondered um, what your view on a kind of more bottom-up approach to trying to classify some of these behaviours might be. For example, we don't actually say callous emotional traits when we're talking about our sample because mm. they are three to five years old. Yeah. We say callous emotional behaviours or tendencies. Yeah. And again, I don't know what people's reaction is to even measuring. Yeah. These things in kids that young. Um, yeah. But there are other ways that you, you possibly could try and assess these behaviours without using either parent reports or teacher reports. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so obviously that, that it might be related to early displays of empathy and conscience and that kind of thing. Mm. Um, but I just, I just wondered what your view on, was on um, if we reject the kind of hair approach, which is criminality and antisocial behaviour and psychopathy all go along together. Mm. And kind of think of it, perhaps more how Kleckley originally described it, that there's this lovely dimensional um, yeah. model of psychopathy and there are psychopaths walking amongst us who aren't committing crimes, and how we might use that in our definition of it from a much earlier age. But you see, I, see I, is it, yeah, I, well, I, you see, but I suspect, coming back to the conversation we were just saying, I suspect that a key feature of psychopathy is that, is, or antisocial, is it has to include some harmful behaviour to others. I don't know what it means to study psychopathy. And there's lots of research on psychopathic traits in second-year undergraduates. Who <laughs> they can't all be psychopaths, are they, Julian? Apparently, in jail or. But I mean, it, it seems to me that it, what is the point of studying psycho psychopathic traits in people who've never done any harm to anybody and statistically are vanishingly unlikely to do so? I mean, that's the other thing: serious violence. Is, is actually a very rare form of rule-breaking. It only accounts for 20% of criminal rule-breaking in this country. Even if, it, even if it's underreported, it's still a minority of ways that people break the rules. And, and serious violence, we're talking about murder, homicide, um, is, is, is rarer still. So I, I find myself wondering what it is that we're looking for. What is it we're looking for a way of relating, aren't we? We're, we're looking for a set of attitudes. But I'm not quite sure what it means 
to study those in a child who is not yet an independent entity. And I think there's a sort of there's a model of mind here. Um, I don't agree. I mean, I think it's very important to study it in, in a non-communal population. I think mm. it's right and appropriate that you would separate um, early displays of psychopathy from. But what do you mean by psychopathy? Well, if if, if it doesn't involve any, if it does, if it, what do you mean by psychopathy? If it doesn't involve, I mean, taking your point about Cleckley. Yeah. So you want, so you prefer to use the Cleckley idea of psychopathy in which. So these are people who don't appear to be moved by other people's mm -hmm. distress yeah. and people who are ready to break the rules. Now, Not necessarily yeah. ready to break the rules because that to me already implies some kind of delinquency or early space of combat. So, 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 not responding to, so not responding to distress. The, the difficulty is that there are alternative explanations for not responding mm -hmm. to distress in children. Um, the whole, there's a whole, there has a whole raft of attachment literature which has a very profound explanation for why, very clear for why children don't display emotion in relation to distress, um, which is not quoted by surviving literature in, in any way. Yeah. And, and, I, and I, I have a big worry about the fact that, it, that although Paul Frick's work, Essie Vine's work, they say they're not going to talk about children as psychopaths, they inevitably do. And so we start, we start generating a narrative of psychopathic children which is, is just wrong. I mean, and because it does, the trouble is that I think that the word psychopath is too enmeshed in the, in the social literature now to be anything but bad. And I, I, I take your point that it might be interesting to look at children who don't respond, although I think the difficulty is that children are works in progress. What's, how on earth do you, I mean, what does it mean to say this three-year-old doesn't respond enough in terms of emotions? He you know, he hits his little sister, she cries, he seems, un he seems uninterested. But what is that, and the trouble is we can't know what that means to him, because he may not be able to have, say anything about that. But what we don't know is whether that's necessarily going to persist. You know, um, I mean, it, it might be, I mean, in our own study, which is a longitudinal study, um, early displays of these behaviours certainly do identify more severe subgroup of children with conduct problems. Mm. Um, but the much more interesting question, which I think we would agree on, is, well, if that's true, what, what, what can you put in place in terms of intervention? Or what, how can you work with parents to reduce those behaviours so that those kids don't then go on to become and do the you ones look that at, end up in your facility? And do you look at the parents' responses yeah, to yeah. distress? Yeah, because, I think, because I think that this is incredibly important, because it seems to me that, that, that Stephen Suomi's work suggests that in, in, in his their study they're psychopathic monkeys, as it were, is they could turn around the genetic expression by improved maternal rearing. Mm -hmm. So it seems to me that, that you see, I, I, I think there's a very interesting narrative here of, of, of damaged children and, and parents who are just, as it were, completely separate. So there's sort of this damaged child has arrived in the world and the parents are, are, are somehow nothing to do with it. And yet... You know, let's say this is a child who has a deficient affective response, and I still don't know what that means in a child whose brain is way off finished. You know, maybe they're a late starter. What happens if? Do I mean I know what you say? I know that you say it's persistent, but but even if it was persistent, I find myself wondering. You see, because not everybody we see uh, in the hospital has had this sort of history. I mean, there might be plenty of people who go on just to have deficient affective experience. And I think that the, the difficulty about the false positives um, must be a bit of a worry too. But I mean, I guess I, I mean, I, 
you know, I think I do. I, I worry that it's hard to control the language, and that what happens is that that subtle deficit, subtle emotional problems at home, are not picked up, and it's easier to say that little Johnny has an affective, poor affective response. And I just think that that's that's, and maybe maybe it is easier. Maybe it's easier then to 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 respond to respond. But the but the main people who can affect that child's behaviour are his parents. Um, you had a question. I think was it? Yes, you were. Maybe you, maybe the moment went. Well, I, I, yeah, I, I didn't want it to be a distraction, but maybe it's trivial. But I, I'm surprised. I mean, you seem to be implying on one of your slides, and you just mm. mentioned it a few minutes ago. You said. I don't know if you used the word only 20%, but mm. you, you implied that 20% was sort of reported mm. crimes of violence. Mm. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the number of, the overall number of, of reported crimes is, is in seven figures, so 20% is a, that's a lot of violence. Oh, I'm not suggesting, and I'm not suggesting for a moment that it's not numerically way too much, <laughs> um, or that it's a, or that it's a, it's a good thing, no, no, but, no. but only to say that the idea that violence is a very common way for people to break the rules, okay. you know, and, and that actually my experience is that it takes quite a lot for people to be violent. Mm. And that's the, other thing that, that's the other thing that worries me a little bit about this research is that, is that there may be, I don't know about three-year-olds particularly, but seven-year-olds, there may be meaning in their rule breaking. There may be, I mean, you know, they're, they're old enough to have a narrative. Um, and that's you know, conspicuous by its absence, really, the idea that what's the narrative of what might be going on, what might be going on. And you see, I think there might be quite sort of, again, it's quite sort of subtle signals that are being sort of missed. But I know I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm, all I wanted to say really is that it's actually quite an unusual thing for people to be violent, to be physically violent. Um, and, and, so, and, and so we should be even more interested in that we are because it's quite an unusual thing, way to go to break the rules. If you're, going to break, if you're going to break the rules, yeah, you're going to nick somebody's stuff. You're probably not going to hit them on the head with a crowbar. Um, but you might do that later, but you, know, but you won't know. But, um, but, and so I think, it's more, I think it's interesting. I think you had about the um, evaluation criteria for the um, health and welfare treatment mm. children's study. Um, I noticed that well, our colleague behind you might be better. She, yeah, she, 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 knows, she knows this literature inside out, I okay. suspect. Well, what you listed on, on your screen, um, mm. like the lack of ability to keep promises yeah. and the lack, um, were, were those the actual promises? <coughs> yeah. They, yep. they just in sent a little... In that study. Not universally, though. No, but in that study, but it's a quite an influential study. It's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's a big study. Of, of, it's been quite influential. This question seemed a little slanted to me in terms of uh, if I was going to um, design it, I might ask about the overall ability to keep promises instead of the lack of ability. And I just wondered if maybe that, I suppose if all the children in the study are being evaluated by the, the teacher um, using the same question, you know, lack of ability to complete Complete mm. homework, um, but if I was a teacher and didn't like little Johnny, then mm. it'd be very easy well, to do that. Well, that's my worry. Yeah. Is that that? Is my big worry is that there are children who are. Be if I'm really going to come clean, I'm worried that there's a significant amount of children who are being subject to abuse and maltreatment, and that's why they're being difficult at school. And they you know, and 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 actually, it's not being picked up because it's easier to label the children as being difficult than it is to look at quite subtle maltreatment at home. Now, I, you know, I don't have any way of proving that, um, and I don't know, 
um, and, I, and I'm not suggesting it's a total experiment, I'm not trying to suggest that there aren't any children who are difficult from the get-go, although it does it raise the next question is, what do you do about children who are difficult from the get-go? Sorry, you were... I think that's fantastic, and I know that there are, you know, there is a lot of research and interest in parenting skills and parenting programs, and that's fantastic. Although, it's interesting to me that the the ones with the particularly difficult families is only really just getting going in the last couple of years. But CAMs and CAM services, in my experience, in my experience, possibly limited experience, my experience is that CAM services have stopped working with families altogether. Um, and work with children, and work with children. They have ADHD and oppositional and CD clinics, and you would, and, and, and you know, well, they do indeed have fun, <laughs> but they're expensive. I mean, you know, providing parenting interventions or family interventions is is expensive. And, and uh, you don't have to convince me. You don't have to convince me. I mean, I. Yeah. What I'm saying is that it's not, it, it doesn't worry me as much as it worries you because I see the logical, the logical intervention is, and the effective intervention is, is with kids, yeah. is with parents. Sorry. Yeah. 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 Uh, I mean, it, it, it. I suppose I. Yeah. I worry. I just, I just, I just worry a little bit about. Oh, I wonder about what it means to create a narrative of difficult children. Okay, if you have a narrative of, of a subgroup of difficult children with callous on emotional traits mm. who are not um, are not amenable to interventions, including mm. parenting interventions, mm. I think that's a terrible narrative. Mm. And I think that a lot of um, Becky's work mm. with, early, with early parenting and mm. we're doing a systematic review about parenting mm. interventions for callous on emotional kids suggests mm. they're not unamenable at all and that mm. it's actually a, a really a really erroneous narrative. Mm. Mm. So, um, yes, I agree yeah. with your worry. I that's, think it, needs, it is challenging. That's, that's, that's where I am. And we are, I mean, we, we, in all of our papers, we always say we don't like the label CD traits. It implies stability. It's inappropriate for children who, as you say, mm. structural personalities changing all the time, mm. you know, and, and, and the word trait implies mm. something that I just yeah. think is... Sort of sticky. Yeah, and, and so I don't even really like CU behaviour or CU tendency, I, but I don't, for want of a better label, mm. Um, I don't know what we can do with it. But it certainly does seem to be a valid construct, at least, that, that there is this subgroup of kids who show this set of behaviours. Mm. Um, mm. And you can measure it, albeit relatively flawed measures, mm. quite mm. reliably mm. Mm. from an early age. But. Yeah, and I suppose what's interesting is is, is the, the people, I suppose, who don't have that, you know, that... Um, you know, what about the children who don't have... Well, there's nothing you can do. And I said there's something about it, it, how much it predicts, really. You know, I know it predicts a small subgroup. That's the slide at the beginning, isn't it? Doesn't, isn't it? But so we've got three questions in ten minutes, so I'm sorry. <laughs> Sounds like you've got lots to talk about afterwards. So I think uh, there was uh, Simon, Pack, and then Nigel, unless somebody's got something on this particular. 
I'm interested in these issues that Bennett asked you about, mm. about responsibility and blame in mm. relation um, to these types of mm. uh, people. So um, you did mention the distinction between uh, murder and manslaughter with mm. diminished responsibility, and that depends mm. on drawing a line in many cases between uh, people who are, are uh, acting badly or, or, or just morally bad people and people who have some kind of mental disorder or mental illness. Um, and I'm wondering about whether there is a real line there um, between different types of people in, in adults, and if so, how, you know, what's your sense of how to draw that line? Mm. And um, if there is that line, is it in children as well? Are there mm. just bad children rather than merely? Um, I, mean, I think I, I'm what I'm interested in uh, I, is, is, I mean, this is the, the manslaughter, murder, manslaughter, commission. I mean, this is the legal construct. So. I think one doesn't want to give it any more sort of doesn't have any more empirical doesn't have an empirical ballast to it. I mean, it, it it's a device to make sure that people who are clearly mentally unwell can get a different type of verdict. Although just the fact that they can get a different type of verdict is in itself quite interesting. That there are some types of homicide. And it's only homicide that you get diminished. You can run diminished in. There are some types of homicide where we don't want to blame people as much, and I think that that's, that in itself is quite interesting. That we want to we basically want to blame people who kill people very seriously, but we appreciate that there are some situations where we don't want to blame them as much, mm. and that I think is just that realization is quite interesting. I mean, quite you know, rather good on the part of people. You know, it's quite interesting. So then you've got to you've got to you know, do a legal device to make that possible, and the legal device is to have psychiatric evidence that says there's a mental disorder present. Mm. And that's what the psychiatrists are meant to do. The psychiatrists are meant to say, yes, there's a mental disorder present, no, there isn't. The second half of the dimensional responsibility of defense is meant to be up to the jury to decide. And the jury are meant to decide whether the disorder was enough to impair your responsibility. <coughs> and in practice, what often happens is the hat the psychiatrist then get asked anyway. And sort of wriggling in the witness box, saying, This is really for me, this is for the jury. Mm-hmm. And the jury say, We're terribly interested in what you think. You know, so, I mean, so, and is, is so your question has a lot of different bits to it, really. Is there such a thing, you know, can you reliably diagnose mental disorder? Yes, I think you probably, yes, I think you can. Can you make a substantial link between mental disorder and altered responsibility <coughs> for crimes? Yes, I think you can. Are there grey cases? You betcha. Um, do we argue about them? Yes, we do. Um, you can have long contested murder trials where you've got two or three psychiatrists for both the prosecution and defence arguing, um, and that's often in, often in, in, in cases like Mr. Sutcliffe in the Yorkshire psychiatry, where there are about eight psychiatrists, two for the prosecution, two for the defence, two for the crown, and two who were just there because it was there. Yeah, I mean, it was. Um, <laughs> Can't have too many psychiatrists. It's a take-home message. Um, so, I mean, so is it? I think the, the question of, where, of how it impairs your responsibility, of course, is the is a whole is a subject for another day. But, but I don't think there's a line. I don't think there's a line. I think this is a device. I think we're talking about social processes to allow us to alter process of blame. Um, so I don't think there's a line of mental disorder on one side and not on the other, and I certainly don't think it exists in children. And I, I mean, I think child, I think child mental health is very complicated just because you've got a work in progress. And in the, in the units that I work in, we struggle to know how much of these young, the young people's thoughts and behaviours, how much is to do with the normal 
sort of developmental process, you know, and how much is, is, is as it were, fixed because of early damage, you know. Um, so just to clarify, you don't think that antisocial personality disorder or psychopathic personality disorder are actually mental disorders? I... Even though they're in whatever it is, DSM before... Do I think they're mental disorders? Uh, yes, I, do, I mean, I do think they're mental disorders. I'm not sure they're mental disorders that offer your responsibility for anything. Right. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can I just ask you, um, to, uh, why do you think it's important that... You said it was a social device. Why do you think it's important that we limit the amount of blame we place on people who act out of mental disorders? Well, Why shouldn't we blame them just the same as anyone else? Well, I would take the view... Um, and this is a, a very short answer to a very big question. I mean, I would take the view that um, that that we blame we when we blame people, we want them, as it were, to be able to own what they've done. There's some type of mutual transaction here, um, and that if you can't own what you've done as your as as your choice then I think it is, um, we don't, there is a, a, a very strong feeling that we don't want to blame them quite as much as people who made an elective choice to do this, to do this thing. I think the, the difficulty is that one doesn't often meet people who say, I really want to do this bad thing and I really know it's bad and I don't give a bugger. I mean, I don't. <laughs> um, okay, we've got four minutes and two questions, so pack. Well, just a quick um, Question. Oh yes. <laughs> I'm wondering how the well parents would see you trace uh, whether there are any study on the relations or correlations with their ability to give good parenting. So those parents would see you trace. Can they give good parenting? Well, I that would affect the whole way you structure. I don't know of any study that's looked at CU trace and parents, but I I do know. I mean, I do know. Or similar relations, like well, the, similar I mean, yes, relations. I mean, there are lots of studies of of how parents can be hostile and um, and cruel towards children in subtle or not so subtle ways. We've naturally been very focused on the people who apply you know, sort of physical violence, but there are there's some very interesting work being done, being done by a woman called Carla Lyons Ruth in Boston, looking at hostile, helpless states of mind in mothers, mothers who are hostile towards their children, don't lay a finger on them but are simply hostile to them at times of distress. And, and the difficulty here is that if, you are, if, a, if, a, if, you're, if you're a small child, if you're a three-year-old, and you are in distress, and your mother treats you with either A, contempt, or B, hostility, that is, you, that is bad for your brain. Right. Particularly that happens day in, day out. Um, and that's just mothers. We don't, I mean, it, it, there's also the question of fathers and fathers. And in fact, there's a very interesting paper earlier, earlier on this year, I think, um, looking at, at eye contact between antisocial boys and their fathers. And they'd wonder about how many of those fathers might have a good hand to see you trace. Um, but I mean, I think the, the worry is about fear, because chronic fear is bad for the developing brain. Right, but I'm yeah. not so much interested in the children, but on the parents. How would you work with parents? Yeah, if they well, are incapable of giving good care, then the whole system of asking well, them to give good care yeah. would be... 
Well, at present, what we do is we take children away from such parents. Right, exactly. But then yeah. there's another question whether we have rights to do it or not. How many minutes did you say? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, one minute. So, maybe Nigel, you have. No, I mean, it's actually not fair. I don't think she does. Yeah, I, I mean, I, that's, a whole, that's a whole different ballgame. Yeah. Um, whether you can teach parents who are hostile yeah. towards their children to be not so hostile, I think you probably can, but it takes a long time and it's not cheap. Yeah. My, my question for what's worth was going to be, you know, given that from what's been said, the um, of the best hope lies in intervention with parents. Mm. You can't coerce parents yeah. to do that. Yeah. Um, and so this kind of Well, but it's interesting that you can't, though. Coming back to the issues about social systems for praise and blame, you can do all sorts of things for people to reduce their risk. You can, you, you know, you can detain people using mental health legislation on the grounds of possible risk for a very long time, but you can't coerce parents into coming to a parenting class? I think it's fascinating. And I think it's the remnants of the type of 19th century patriarchy, and she's getting a bit of pride now, um, about where, ch where children are possessions. I think we still still really think that children belong, uh, are their children's possessions, their parents' possessions, and really parents are allowed to do, you know, that that's, that's where you start. But I'm, I'm willing to hear argument on this issue. Okay, well, we have sort of run out of time in terms yeah. of our use of the room. But as any great talk, um, the sort of a good talk is that, that conversational questions can go on and on. So maybe if you want to ask when something happened before she disappears. But thank you so much for coming up. It's really a privilege. Thanks.